God's words be spoken, may God's words be heard. Amen. Amen. Well, first, I'm glad you all are here, shaking off that loss of an hour's sleep. I, for one, absolutely love daylight savings time. But if you're yawning during the sermon, I, try, I will try not to take it personally. Now, one thing we can say after last week and today, the, author of this, the authors of this fourth gospel are not lost for words. The narratives are long discourses that make the stories of the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, look like tweets compared to the miniseries we get in John. So let's just recap, but before we do, let's also set the scene. Now, y'all know I love Hallmark movies, right? Particularly the Christmas ones. Just watched one last night. And as you likely know, Hallmark movies pretty much go along the same plot line. Right? You know, the, where the big town, the big CEO travels to her small hometown, meets a handsome guy, falls in love, and decides to stay to per- pursue her lifelong dreams of being a shop owner or owning a farm or something. Not a Hallmark fan? Well, the same is true of everything in Hollywood. Boy meets girl, boy loses girl, boy gets girl back from the, for the rom-com set, right? Or in westerns, we all know that when the sheriff and the gunslinger meet in the street, they aren't there to kiss and make up. A gunfight's going to happen and the good guy always wins. Well, believe it or not, that's what's happening in this story, too. No, not a gunfight, but more like a Hallmark movie. The thing is, we are so far removed from the experience of those who first heard our scriptural stories that we forget what it was like for them to listen or read it themselves. So first, this meeting of Jesus and the woman at the well is what we call, uh, it's called a type scene. The original listeners or readers were being set up to expect something. Those who heard it in the first century would have looked at this like we do, a man and a woman meeting in a romantic movie. They would have thought, man in foreign country encounters woman at a well. Well, they're going to get married and have a lot of kids. Why? Well, this scene had been, happened many times over in scripture and in other stories, something these first listeners would have known. Now, just to name a few from our own scriptures, Moses goes to a foreign land and meets Zipporah at a well. Jacob goes to a foreign land and meets Rachel at a well. And Isaac sends his servant to his hometown to find him a wife from his people. And where does the servant encounter the potential mate? You guessed it, at a well. So what do you think listeners were expecting when Jesus goes to this well in a foreign country and meets a woman there? Knowing the context is really important, right? But there's one more thing we need to know. And we didn't even hear it this week. The verse just before what we heard today says that Jesus left Judea and started back to Galilee. But he had to go through Samaria. Sounds okay, right? I mean, we all kind of have to go through other places to get where we want to go, right? Here's the thing, though. That wasn't true. 
Sure, it's a more direct path from Jerusalem to Galilee, but any Jew would never have taken it. The hatred between these two people was renowned, so they would have gone by the usual more secure, longer route (laughs) to avoid traveling through Samaria. Why then did Jesus have to go this way? Through Samaria. Good question. To answer it, let's remember how we left off last week or in scriptural terms, a few verses before the story, where we are told that God so loved the world. God so loved the world. As one commentator noted, Jesus is saying to his disciples, you want to know what the world looks like? Well, I'll show you. We're going to Samaria. This was a, not a, this was a theological, not a geographical necessity. Jesus goes to Samaria and speaks with this woman to make it clear that God loves all the world, not just the part we live in ourselves or the people we happen to like. Not only that, but when invited to stay, he does for two whole days with these folks. Lordy, the disciples and those first hearing this story were probably rocked back on their heels like someone watching, oh, I don't know, an action-packed adventure movie just at that suspenseful climatic reveal that, you know, Darth Vader is actually Luke's dad, something like that. So with all that in mind, let's go back to the dialogue we heard and try to figure out what it was like to hear this story in that context. First, let's give this woman a name. I always like to call her Sophia. Last time I recapped it, I called her Sophia because Sophia is a name that means wisdom. Hopefully, that's Sophia over there. (laughs) So here we go. And of course, I'll paraphrase a bit, as I do. Jesus is tired as he travels through Samaria and goes to sit by a well, the infamous well of Jacob, no less, for a bit of rest. His disciples had gone to the local stop and shop in town for some food. And just then, a woman comes to draw water from the well. And Jesus says to her, give me a drink. All right, let's put a please in there because, I don't know, you may be the savior of the world, but it's still nice to be polite. So give me a drink, please. Sophia says, are you talking to me? Don't you know I'm a Samaritan, right? What on earth are you doing here? Don't you want to run off in case you get cooties or something? Jesus smiled and said, Now, you might think this is funny, but if you knew who I really am, you would be asking me for a drink. Sophia looks him up and down, thinking the hot sun's gotten to this guy, and says, Say what? I'm the one with the jar. How possibly are you going to draw water from that deep well without one? And Jesus answered, if you drink from this well, you'll be thirsty again. Yeah. Okay, go on. But the water I give quenches for all time the thirst you have. Because once you drink of this water, you, will, you yourself will become a well that springs forth water for all time. Sophia thinks about it for a moment and says, Sir, give me a drink of your water. 
Now, this is where it takes an interesting turn. See, Jesus says, go get your husband and come back. But Sophia says, I don't have a husband. And this is when Jesus affirms her. What you have said is true. You've had five, but the man you now have isn't your husband. And folks, here's where the misogyny of our world today interjects meaning where it shouldn't. So before we continue, let's just set the record straight. First, it may not really be about men at all. For that matter, this woman might not have even existed. All of them may be a metaphor for the nations or gods that the Samaritans worshipped. Some scholars point out it is possible that this was a theological metaphor for the alliances of Samaria with surrounding nations or with the people of other faith traditions. But even if these were actual people, none of that seems to matter to Jesus, does it? He didn't care about any of that. Because in that day, there were many reasons this might be so, none of which would reflect poorly on this woman, especially given that women did not have full agency over their lives when it came to marriage. So now that we've cleared up the sexism of past church interpretation, let's get back to the dialogue. Sir, she says to Jesus, I see that you are a prophet. So let me ask you a question. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain. I mean, we're standing at Jacob's well, a place that is sacred to Samaritans and to your people, the Jews. Why is it then that they abandon this place and say, everybody's got to go worship in Jerusalem? What's up with that? Jesus replies, there's going to be a time when none of that matters because what's important is not where you worship, but that you worship in spirit and truth, that your worship is genuine. Sophia says, I know that there's someone who is coming, the Christ, that will proclaim truth to us. Are you? I am. I am. Now let's just stop right there. Jesus just uttered the words, I am. I know the text we read in church says Jesus saying, I am he, but that he is added by later translations into English to complete the grammatical sentence. The Greek is ego ami, period. Jesus just used the divine name given to Moses that he is I am. Only God would say this. And after hearing this amazing pronouncement by Jesus, Sophia leaves her water jar at the well and runs to tell her people in town everything, inviting them to go see for themselves. They do and invite Jesus to stay with them. And get this, he does. He stays with them. Or really, the Greek is even better. It is meno, or abide. Abide. Jesus abides with these Samaritans. So now that we've heard it all again, with our understanding of the context, it is clear that this back and forth of Jesus and Sophia is a powerful theological dialogue. But what's it saying to us now? First and foremost is that God really does love the world, the entire world, not just our little corner of it. Jesus goes to Sikar to a Samaritan woman, an outsider on two counts, because Jesus came into the world for everyone. Hate some group of people? Guess what? God loves them. 
God goes to them. God abides with them. And part of how we love others is doing as Jesus and Sophia did. Listen, really listen, deeply and without judgment. This was a dialogue between a Jew and a Samaritan, a man and a woman. When she asks questions, he doesn't respond with indignation, condemnation, anger, or impatience. It's easy for us to bypass the significance of this, but let's reframe it so that we don't miss the heart of what is happening. And we don't have to leave our country to do it. From school boards to libraries, city hall to congressional office buildings, across social media platforms of all kinds, shouting and condemning one another has become the norm. Hate speech is now righteous in some minds because they deserve it. And they, being any group we believe, rightly or wrongly, has harmed us. MAGA, woke, turf, trans, Nazi, socialist, union, management, drag, drag, immigrants, Jews, Muslims. Jeez, the list goes on and on and on and on. So let's be absolutely clear about it. Hate is never okay. And we must not be a part of it or, and call it out wherever it may manifest in the world. Violence against another person, no matter what they believe, how they vote, who they love, what language they speak, what color is their skin, no matter if they are male or female, rich or poor, or any other way we divide ourselves from one another, God loves them, and so must we. And love does no harm to another in word or in deed. Because even if hate is in the heart of those who stand opposite wherever we are, then we know by our faith that the only way to overcome that is not by hate, but by love. That's the, the power of the cross and empty tomb. Light overcomes darkness. Life overcomes death. Love overcomes hate. That's what Jesus is making clear and going to this place and having this conversation. And just as shocking as that was to those who witnessed it in his time, our life in Christ, loving as he loved, loving the world, that's just as countercultural now. And it doesn't take much to know that anything or anyone that goes against the grain, that seeks peace amidst war or love in the face of hate, well, that's not only going to be exhausting, but sometimes even dangerous. Jesus went to that well, it says, because even he was tired. And we also know the cross that lay ahead. How then are we ever to be the people we're called to be? How possibly can we love all the world as God does? The thing is, our faith is rooted in the water of life we receive when we are baptized into Christ. And it is here at this well of life, this altar, where we are nourished by our encounter with the real presence of Jesus who abides with us in the Eucharist. It is here where we are healed, renewed, and restored in Christ and by our fellowship with one another too. And from here, we are given the strength for the journey to love all the world as God does unconditionally. None of that means that our lives in Christ will be easy. But Jesus was right. It will nourish us in ways unimaginable. And finally, 
There is another takeaway from this gospel, and it is found in what the woman does. She leaves her jar at the well to share the good news with everyone she knows that they may come and encounter Christ too. So as much as we need to be like Jesus, loving all the world, we also need to be Sophia, inviting others to meet him too. We aren't meant to stay at the proverbial well, but going out into our towns and cities to proclaim the good news that all may come to know the unconditional love and grace of God. So come to this well and encounter Christ and one another and abide in the real presence of him in the Eucharist. Come to be nourished, to be healed, to be loved. Come to worship in spirit and in truth. And then leave your water jars at the door to proclaim the good news. To say, come and see, inviting others to experience the life-giving grace and love of, for Christ, of Christ themselves. Leave your water jars at the door and go to the places others will not travel, to the ones others despise, and love them. Love all the world. For God seeks such as these most especially. The ones who do not know they are loved. The ones who cannot see how marvelously they are made. The ones whom we and others have cast aside. Jesus is meeting you here today. Listen to him as he abides with you. Invite others here to come and see, to encounter him, him themselves. Walk as Jesus did to the places others will not go, to the people others will not talk to, and love them unconditionally. For God so loved the world, all the world, and so must we. Amen.